Welcome to Risk Never Sleeps, where we meet and get to know the people delivering patient care and protecting patient safety. I'm your host, Ed Gaudet. Welcome to the Risk Never Sleeps podcast, in which we discuss the people on the front lines protecting patient safety and delivering patient care. And today, I am pleased to be joined by my good friend, Carter Groom, CEO of First Health Advisory. Carter, good afternoon. How are you, sir? Yeah, good afternoon. Thank you so much, Ed, for having me. I just love the format of this podcast and really glad to participate today. Thanks so much. No, I, I really appreciate it. And I appreciate our partnership. We've recently announced that we're partnering together. So that's exciting. But uh, we're going to stay on a different topic today. We're going to talk about you, Carter. How's that oh, for exciting? Look out. <laughs> All right. Let's start with, tell us about your current role and your current organization. I am the CEO of First Health Advisory, and we are, uh, I think, above all us, a digital health risk assurance firm, and we advise providers, retail health outlets, payers, life sciences organizations, government health entities in everything that they're doing across the digital health spectrum as it relates to privacy, security, business resilience, compliance, policy, and, and, and even probably above all that governance. Mm-hmm. That's what we call risk assurance. And it's 100% focused on the health sector. And we believe that all of those things that I shared must be considered a business imperative and a, a really a condition of participation, in my view. And so we do a lot of board and leadership education and awareness and ensuring they feel informed and confident in their strategy on how their business will react and ultimately continue in the face of adversity. And so that's, that's really what our firm is uh, focused on. So a pretty heavy lift, pretty, pretty, a, a, a lot you're doing for organizations. When did you get started? I've been in healthcare actually three days uh, outside of undergrad. I drove back across the United States and I started my career with Adventist Health System. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was really my history is in electronic health records. And so there was a company that was the uh, juggernaut of the day. They were the epic or cerner of the day called Shared Medical Systems. And anybody that's been in the business a long time has some roots in Shared Medical Systems. I was implementing those systems in the early mid 90s. That was the start of my career. And I'm a lifer. I'm a healthcare IT lifer. There's no way I'm getting out now. I always dream of making tacos on a beach somewhere <laughs> in the Caribbean, but overrated. But until, until that time, I'm somehow tied to this uh, emotionally and physically. This is what I care about. It's what I wake up in and it's my passion. It's my craft. It's what I do every day. Mm-hmm. And when did you start your organization, your company? Uh, First Health Advisory started in 2005. In fact, we incorporated in 2004. And so we're actually just scratching oh, almost 20 years. Wow, congratulations. That's huge. Absolutely insane. Yeah, I do consider myself in many ways an entrepreneur, but not a serial entrepreneur in, in that respect. But, you know, it's, it is a labor of love. You're sitting in the same seat mm-hmm. that I'm in, and it is difficult for others to know all the challenges that we face in running a business because oftentimes you're not doing necessarily the things that you got into 
the field for when you're running a business. But it is rewarding. And I think the work that we do overall in healthcare is super important. And what helped you make that transition from EHR implementation to cybersecurity and risk management? Yeah, you're really getting to the heart of things now, Ed. I, yeah, I really enjoyed the years where we were focused on EHR implementation, integration, optimization. And it was a time when the systems were more best of breed focused than ever where you have a specialty lab system, you have a specialty radiology system, you have a new cycle system, a CPOE order system. And there was a lot of work to just integrate those systems and make sure how they were efficient and how you got the information from those systems. And then meaningful use came and, and sort of we all benefited from the investment in meaningful use. And certainly we did. But I thought around that time, that, that train, that that everybody's riding that wave is going to come to an end. And I just actually, you know, didn't absolutely love being one of 500 companies out there that did Epic and Cerner consulting work. We still do. It's a legacy. That's important work. Mm -hmm. The analytic side of it is really important. The analytic side of it in, in terms of what we're talking about today for AI is so important. The information we're getting out of the EHR is important, but I just had a draw to security, to cyber. And I had a good mm-hmm. friend who's the company now, Dr. Toby Galker, who is the provost at the SANS Institute. And I still mm-hmm. think that's the gold standard in education for cyber. And, and I sat down with him for breakfast one day and I said, Toby, I, I don't know security. What am I going to do? <laughs> he, he convinced me that we had a great base of clients in healthcare. And he said, healthcare is the next target. Now, mind you, this is 2015-ish, late mm, 2015, yeah. and Ruby was very prescient in saying healthcare is extremely vulnerable and you could help your clients with uh, assuring risk and getting after some of their cyber concerns. And I said, I'll do it, Toby, if you join the organization. And here we are today now, almost seven, eight years into that and loving all of the challenges that come with running a risk assurance and cybersecurity firm. You had that vision to ask the question and then to act on it, which is what's so hard to do these days to take that leap of faith. That oh, if- believe me, it was scary. It's still scary today. <laughs> but I just love the challenge of it. There, there's always something to be learned in the mm-hmm. security. And once you think you're an expert, something's going to happen yeah, that's next right. week that's going to make you not look like an expert. Exactly. Uh, so that's, I really do enjoy it, even though it's it's a stressful feel. There's no doubt. You're living it. I'm living it. Yeah. Yeah. And you're uniquely qualified. That EHR implementation experience must give you that leg up on other providers in this industry as well. I think so. And it's also led us down this path of truly understanding the environment of care. We talk cyber safety as patient safety. Uh, and if you're an organization that does not understand the workload, that does not understand the impacts of certain security controls that you place on certain departments or certain assets or devices in the organization, how informative is your advice going to be? I understand there's a pure technical component to security but there's an understanding of the operations of the business and what those that are leading those operations can and cannot do without technology that really helps us from a multidisciplinary perspective. And that's our approach, is looking at security as an enterprise issue. 
that that I think is a differentiator in what we do. Yeah, and again, at leading edge, as we talk about integrating cybersecurity with the enterprise, most people have thought about it as a silo to the enterprise. You must think about it horizontally these days. Unequivocally, right? And that's where I come back to what I was talking about at the beginning, Ed. It must be a business imperative for what we do in the field of healthcare to integrate security and privacy and the, the policies and the frameworks that we all use. It, it, it's got to be just a part of your business. And if it's not, you're going to find out the hard way you should have, you should have looked at it that way. Yeah. What are some of the, the tips or techniques you could offer to organizations, listeners that may have been struggling with connecting the dots with the business? Oof. But yeah, I mean, we can we could go the framework route. We could go best practices route, Ed. I mean, I will say all day long, 405-day HICP, which you've done amazing work with. Uh, look, the advice, the counsel, the playbooks, mm-hmm. they're out there. And we looked at NIST CSF. Those are the two seminal documents. In fact, they're codified, right? Right. PL 116.321. OCR looks at those and says, well, if you've been following those practices, we're going to Give you a little slack if you've had a bad day. But I, I still think to this day, the most important thing is buy-in from the board, the leadership of the organizations are being run. If they don't have the imperative, as I talked about, to do these things, to make investments, and it's really hard. I, I get it. Now, this is of, of the top five priorities in healthcare, and cybersecurity is one of them, at least according to all the data out there. This is the only priority that is not a revenue generating investment. Mm. And it's a tough conversation, right? We in security just think, gosh, it's so idiotic of you not in a program, right? You're going to go buy an MRI machine because that's going to return investment right away. That's a difficult conversation if you're a CFO, if you're a board leader, right? It, It makes all the sense in the world to us to invest, but they're looking at things differently and you have to help them understand why mm. it's important to do that and the risk that their organization faces if they just are blase about cybersecurity. And it's a side thing. And let's just put a pizza under the door of the IT department and hope they protect us from a security standpoint. Now, there, there's just every day. And this is, I get so impassioned and almost mad at what's happening here in Washington or what is not happening in Washington, mm. that, that every day people's lives and communities and, and healthcare organizations are a massive risk uh, from ransomware. And, and the data is out there. This is impacting health outcomes. And so your, your podcast here, when you talk about patient safety, it's true. It's just a matter of getting that information out, bringing awareness to those leaders and those boards that this is the impact of what could happen to your organization. Do you care about that? And I'm surprised every day that some don't really care. I, you know, I don't know yeah. how else to... Yeah, but I think not- that gap is closing. That gap is closing because a lot of folks have experienced the pain of going through a ransomware attack or a data breach or some other incident. And if you haven't, it's just now a matter of time. It will happen it, it, eventually. Unequivocally. Mm-hmm. And that gap is closing. It's just, it, it, was, it's, it moves so slow. Mm-hmm. And that's what's frustrating, right? You, you'd like to see more done. And we say here in Washington, Ed, you know, progress has been made, but more can be done. <laughs> it's so true. Yeah. It, it's so true in what we do. And that's why I'm always advocating, and you're such a master at this, Ed, 
for awareness and education in our marketplace. That's That will never go out of style to try to bring that message and educate different communities of interest in the problem and challenge that we're facing. Said, let's switch and talk about your culture. I've heard really good things about your organization. From your perspective, how do you define the culture? I think it, it kind of starts with humility, Ed. And all of us need a little dose of, of humility, but it goes a long way, especially in our field of cybersecurity and, and privacy and risk. We're dealing with really important, really serious things. And at the same time, a lot of people don't really understand, you know, what, what we're doing. And so we can't bully people into, you know, certain you know, positions with our knowledge. I often, when I'm presenting to boards or if I'm up on Capitol Hill talking to senators and congressmen, in a way, I'm talking to them at a, at a, maybe a fourth grade level to educate them. It's almost like I'm talking to my mom about what I do on a daily basis. But you've got to have an extreme amount of humility when you're doing that. And, and that is a part of our culture here. We are caregivers. All of us are. And we're serving the healthcare industry. And we have a large contingent of nurses and physicians on our team. And so we're very much a caregiving culture in a way. And that's how we have to treat our clients and, and ultimately those organizations and individuals that our clients serve. Yeah, that's what I love so much about serving healthcare is that there's a shared mission that you don't get in any other industry. And maybe if you do, it's not at this level within yeah. healthcare. Yeah, um, and it's, I guess I'd add to that, Harry, that the part of that mission, you, you can't just give it lip service. And I mean, you've got to live it because people will see that if you're just about yeah. making a dollar in this industry. There's people in healthcare that will see that very quickly. That's a hard balance. We're a business. We need to be profitable for sure. But you, you, you need to kind of put that somewhat in the back seat in terms of the organizations we serve because their culture in many ways matches our culture. It has to be successful. Absolutely. Yeah. And you give your time back. I know you work on the private-public partnerships as well. What do those mean to you and your organization? Things like Hiccup and HSCC. And the yeah. time you spend on, on the Hill, I mean, you spend a lot of time educating our legislators. Well, first of all, I, I can't say enough about what Health Sector Council has done in the last couple of years. I mean, it is amazing work and it's amazing to see the individuals. I could go through all the names, right. uh, but there's a lot of them, but how much they give of their time. And, and there's no dollars involved in this. Right, there's, exactly. It's not really... A lot of notoriety that that comes from it, right? We're, we're not going to be social media influencers or superstars from this hard work, but it's meaningful uh, because I, I do think it is changing the positioning in our ultimate sector resilience. And so I, I just can't say enough about that public-private partnership with Health Sector Coordinating Council because there are, are certainly agencies that I think were in the dark if we went back even five years ago. And, and we were dealing with the same ransomware issues then. They've come so far uh, in terms of their understanding, their knowledge, their collaboration. They're working with CISA. They're working with HHS. White House has done some great things. You, sit, you talk about the Hill. That's really the last mile in my mind because 
you you can have executive orders. You can do things at an agency level that will provide incentives or guidance. But statute's really the thing that ultimately moves organizations to do something. I kind of, I stay away from the R word a a little bit, but when we talk about a prioritized practice, uh, I think most of us in the security field understand what that means. It's, hey, let's incentivize organizations to do the right things. And the playbooks are out there, like we talked about. But when I go up to the Hill, there's a genuine interest in it. And I I think there's a, a surprise in a way. When I sit down in the congressional office or a certain senator's office and I show them the healthcare organizations and hospitals that, that have been hit with ransomware in their district or their state and all of their constituents that have been impacted by it, there's genuine interest to help. And then you sort of you know, get into the mix of everything else that's going on in Washington. Of course, we're still trying to figure out if, if we have a Congress, but it, you know, it, it is, it, it, there's, there's, there's just not enough awareness outside of our own little bubble head. And, and just, this is for me, a personal mission to bring that awareness outside of the healthcare technology bubble to a national conversation. And, and you've done so good at this, the magazines like Forbes or tier one media, I got a New York Times or Wall Street Journal. This is part of my mission in 2024 is to get that message out to the general public because that's where we can really then move Congress to do something because they'll start to feel the pressure from their constituents and not just a guy that's coming to lobby them and tell them this is something you should do. But I I wish I could say I was a lot more optimistic about Congress doing something this year. And when you get into next year and election year, it's going to be even more difficult to ask for dollars or incentives, whether it's workforce or meeting a baseline standard. So we might be looking at 26, 27, I don't know. And so the general feeling is we're sort of on our own in a way. And so we need to help each other as a community to be in a better posture uh, from a sector perspective than where we are today. That's right. Stronger together. And I think the community does such an amazing job of doing that. And the folks that do give up their time to move us forward on a number of different levels it's just incredible to watch and participate yeah. in. And like you said, Absolutely. it's just, it is it is humbling to watch the people that give up their time to continue to, to protect patient safety and care, which matters, especially, again, everyone's a patient, everyone knows a patient, everyone's related to a patient. It's our job to ensure yeah. that those patients aren't in harm's way. I just say, uh, to put a cap on that, I am amazed every day because the individuals that have been a part of some of the health sector activities over the last couple of years, but they're all super busy individuals with super stressful jobs, right? And yourself included, Ed, but to give the amount of time that it's required is amazing to see. Uh, I'm appreciative of everybody that's been involved. And this is Cybersecurity Month, so we can't praise the efforts that these folks do enough, quite frankly. So as you think about this year, and next year, what are your top three priorities for your organization? First and foremost, third-party risk. Yeah. See what I did there, Ed? Yeah, I love that, Carter. <laughs> uh, Listeners, I'm not paying him to say that, by the way. Yeah. Look, this is... <laughs> it is a problem. It, continues it, to be a problem. It's yeah. a huge problem. And your, your platform is an amazing platform, so I'll, I'll, I'll provide my support to that. But this is really the scary area of what we do. 
You can do all, all the things, right? You can have the right program, follow the right frameworks, have all the right policies, but you're going to have a partner out there that just for one reason or another, budget-wise, just motivation-wise, is just not doing the same things. And you can't understand if you have... 4,000 business associates in your organization, you can't understand where everybody's posture sits. And so that's the scary sort of unknown blind spot that continues to haunt organizations today. And, and there, there's certainly a move from sort of you know, email compromise to some of that sort of third-party risk because it just ends up being easier to, to get more by doing less if you're an adversary. So I'm, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but that is a major focal area of our organization from a services perspective, because there's a lot of work that goes into that. And, it, and with a platform like yours, you know, it's, it's fantastic because it helps you become more efficient in that work. But we've been for many years doing asset management work and, and understanding the risk related to assets, medical AOT devices. That's another area that's just a, a ton of work. I'd say another area that we've spent a lot of time this year and just trying to sort out the hype cycle elements of AI, but helping boards and helping leadership of healthcare entities sort of understand the promise that comes with that, but also the peril. And and, there's a lot of interest there. We sat on the sidelines for 5G and blockchain and some of that, but this is not something you can sit on the sidelines with, not with generative and predictive AI. And that's something from a governance perspective, understanding sort of the privacy and intellectual property concerns, understanding accuracy concerns. And these are all really important for our organizations, our clients to understand what they're getting into before it's too late. It's moving so quickly too. It's scary. It's it's equivalent to, I lived through the internet boom and... (laughs) Before you knew it was going to be a boom, right? So some people, believe it or not, they didn't believe it was going to be a boom back then. And AI is very similar, probably exponential in terms of its ability to impact us as a society. It's just, it's incredible what's happening and what's happened over the last even six months as it relates to AI. So I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up. I'm a proponent of the lily pad theory, right? And you could go kind of look that up, but we're sort of kind of in, I guess, year, in my view, kind of about 24, 25 of the lily pad theory. But yeah, I've never seen, and I don't think many others have seen a technology rise sort of this quickly. Yes, we've used AI for a long time, Siri and these type of things, but no, nothing like that. It's it's potential impact for healthcare is a use case that supersedes, in my mind, any other sector, the financial sector, the retail sector, Manufacturing healthcare stands to benefit the most from this technology. And so understanding it from a privacy, a security, a risk assurance perspective is really, really important to us and to the clients that we serve. And I'd say the last of the three big things that are important to me is not necessarily a technology perspective. But what we were talking about earlier is getting that message in what's going on in our industry outside of the practitioners and the IT and the, and the security leaders uh, of our field out to the general public. If I can get to you know just a small part of that through one channel or another in the media, whether it be on TV or, or different national publications, I think that's a win because it does come back 
to putting pressure on our policymakers to do something, to provide incentives for our workforce, to provide incentives for just better overall security in our field. So that's another area where you'll see kind of a little elevation from our firm uh, in terms of just that message sharing with those outside of our community. What keeps you up at night? Oh, <laughs> you've heard it before, right? I sleep like a baby. I, I wake up crying every hour. It's, yes, I, I do worry about when, when we have clients out there Ed, and, and something you know, happens, right? The third party, or fourth party, et cetera. Sometimes I, in some way, feel personally responsible if there is a bad day or if there is an event. So I, I worry about that a lot, right? It's just part and parcel to the field that we're in. We've chosen this line of business and there are inherent risks that come with it. And then at the same time, there's just so much geopolitical risk out there. There's so much fiscal pressure on healthcare. And sometimes I just worry, gosh, is it the right field overall? Like, but I think about just the people work for an organization that give so much to what they do and they care so much about the clients we serve. And I want to meet the moment as a leader for them and inspire them in a way, but also act and operate in a way that gives them just confidence and gives them, I guess, pride to have the organization that they're working for. Those are just the things I think about when I'm going to sleep, when I'm waking up in the morning, and I can't even tell you how many times I just wake up in the middle of the night. Maybe I had a dream or something, and it's mostly about work, I guess a function of how much well we you work. don't have to worry that much you have an amazing team carter so i've met a few folks you. from your team everyone of me is just con continues to impress me so you've, you've really built a great company been a tough couple of years for us pandemic Oof, do we get that red badge of pandemic courage as a ceo <laughs> deep breathing exercises start now <laughs> what are you most personally or professionally proud of there was a moment at the beginning of the pandemic ed i think probably sort of felt this way. Like it just, it almost truly felt like the sky is falling. It's like in healthcare and nobody knows what's real, what's not. And it was a really scary time. And, you know, I was getting calls from clients saying, look, our balance sheets are upside down. The market, you know, dropped, what, 30%. We need to pause the work, Carter, that we do with you. We love you, but we just need to pause. And, and that pause is going to be indefinite. And there was about a two to three week period where I fielded 15, 20 calls like that from clients. I, mean, it's just, I was almost like I was afraid to answer the phone. And that was a really just personally a tough time thinking at the time, I've spent 15 years of my life building this business and it could go away in a matter of two, three months. Honestly, I started thinking, what am I going to do? You know, I, mean, this, I don't know if I'll have a business if these calls continue to come in. And through the course of the next couple of weeks, you know, a couple of things happened in, in a positive light and as some spending did pick up. And I'm really proud to kind of have stayed the course and not absolutely freaked out in front of my team during those times. But was there to say, look, we're going to figure a way through this. And we did get BP funds as a company. And we used every dollar of those P funds to keep people employed, that working. They weren't able to bill hours because of what I just shared with you, but we weren't able to get them 
their paychecks. And that is the bottom line, the thing I'm most proud of. That's excellent. Yeah, I know that was a tough period of time. I was getting ready to launch the company, going to Hymns on Saturday. And then on Thursday, they called yeah. the ball and just canceled everything. And I was like, same. Well, like, I remember. What am I going <laughs> to do now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, the only other time I felt that was during the Silicon Valley Bank debacle, which I lived through as well, mm. which was yeah. uh, equally All of us challenging. Jeez. For sure. I know. We, there must be an award for us somewhere out there, I'm sure. I'm just going <laughs> to hold one off. One day, yeah. One day, one day. <laughs> so outside of healthcare and your organization, what would you be doing? What are you most passionate of? you have a hobbies or love for music or the arts or theater? I'm a father of an 11-year-old that plays a lot of soccer, and I love to go to the games. So it's a big part of our lives right now. I'm a husband. We're, I'm actually talking to you from a rental home because our house is going through a complete renovation. So uh, you say risk never sleeps. Carter rarely sleeps himself. But I, you know, like, I love just hiking, I love biking, paddleboard, anything outdoors. I was a swimmer growing up. I love running, just anything outside makes me really happy. And then those on my team know, and this is not many people know this, but I love to paint. Like it's just my escape. I don't do it too often because it, it takes time, but I've just always been a part of me. I just like art. And of course, music. I know you're a huge fan. I am. Yeah. Those things are, are the things that make me happy and, and allow I me. I love to... that you paint. What's your? Do you have a the painter that you go to or more sort of modern style, oh. abs type stuff? Oh. Yeah. So just yeah. I, just, I would love to see some of your work. Yeah. yeah. You can have, have a chance to do that. Do you have a personal website that you posted on or no? Oh, I okay. I would just see some everywhere. That's I do that. There's an element. And, you know, and this is sort of maybe is how I juxtapose the work that we do every day. And sometimes the you don't make progress, even if you work really hard, you paint, you're making progress. And I grew up mowing lawns as a kid, right? Like you Me make tangible yeah. linear progress to how much work that you put in, which Love is that. almost completely opposite to our day jobs in cybersecurity. It's I really to quantify the progress with the amount of work that you do. I similarly, I write poetry for that same reason, just to stay creative, but also to stay in that constant forward movement of mind and body and spirit. I love that. It's a great way to think about it. All right, one day I will see your paintings and maybe I'll buy one. All right, if you could go back in time, what would you tell your 20-year-old self, which was like last week for you, Carter? It's funny, I was joking about my headshot, which is probably 12 or 13 years. It was like right before my daughter was born. It's just, I'm a seventh grade here. And I was probably 40 years old at the time, but it's just, wow, okay. There's a lot more gray hair going on. There's a lot more lines around the eyes these days. But what can I tell my 20-year-old self? First of all, this would be the obvious is put every dollar you ever made into Apple stock, right? <laughs> I've been waiting for someone to say that. Thank I'm you, Gary. I don't even know. It's got to be. I, think, I don't know. You, you know, over the last 30 years, the stock that has oh, provided the most return. Yeah. I don't know. Someone once said, oh, put 10000 in Apple in 1995 and you'd have $20 million or something. So that would be the one thing. But I, yeah, I just... You know, just 
treat people the way that you want to be treated. You know, I did not, not that I you know, was any different back then. I had parents that were caregivers, a nurse and a doctor, right? It, you know, so that's sort of was instilled in me from an early age in caring about people. And sometimes I, I think as a leader, right, a business leader, I mean, you see, we could, you know, share a thousand stories of some later that's just a complete jerk, right, and has had a successful company. I, I say, gosh, do I need to be that way to be successful? You need to treat people like garbage. And it's just not it's not who I am. And I know it's not who you are, Ed. And in this field of healthcare, it's not going to serve you very well to act and operate that way. And so I think that's just just stay the course and treat people the way you want to be treated and good things will happen. Yeah, I was told once that I would never be a CEO because I was too nice. Now, yeah. I'm sure there are other people that would say the opposite. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you're too hard, it. but <laughs> I get it. And, yeah. and it, this this media fascination with people, geniuses or whatever. But then you start to read books and talk about Apple too, right? That, but they weren't necessarily the nicest individuals no. in the world. And I just don't think I need to be that way. Yeah, agree. Not be successful. Yeah. Life is too short. All right. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this question because this is the Risk Never Sleeps podcast. I know you've Boy, prepared for this. What is the riskiest thing, Carter, you've ever done? Oh, man. That, this is such a trap <laughs> of a question. Honestly, Keep it clean. This is a rated G program. Absolutely. Put all that aside and everything I ever did, the teenage boy can just be thrown into the lockbox. Even just every time I got behind the wheel when I was 16 mm. years old, just every stoplight you come to, you want to race somebody. You, so <laughs> set that aside. There, I, there was a moment, uh, a good friend of mine, we were in a, in, in a canyon. There was a waterfall in the canyon. He got stuck. And in all seriousness, I mean, I hardly ever even talked about this. I jumped into a canyon, a waterfall canyon, just threw all risk aside to save a life. Whoa. And people thought I was absolutely insane to do that. But in the moment, I just didn't think about it. But then when I reflect on what I did, I just thought I, I could have easily got caught up in whatever my buddy was getting caught up and we, we, we saved his life. But it was probably one of the riskiest things I ever did without even thinking. Wow. It was instinctive, but people do this every day. And it's, it's not like they're thinking I'm going to be a hero. It's just they do things instinctively that, yes, put their bodies and their lives in harm's way to help and save others. And that's something that certainly comes to mind. I hope you get a holiday card or a birthday card every year. Oh, my best buddy in the world. It's awesome. What an awesome story. <laughs> yeah. Any last advice for those people that are thinking about breaking into cybersecurity, working in healthcare, or maybe that have a couple of years under their belt and they're looking for advancement. We all seen the numbers. The opportunity is immense mm. for people that want to work hard uh, and be in this field. And we need as much help as possible. I mean, we talk about workforce, uh, just about every conversation we can have around the subject. And yes, there are incentives to go to other sectors financially. But you know, if you share some of the same qualities that we've talked about on this podcast today, Ed, and healthcare and giving is important to you. I think this is a great field. It's extremely rewarding and you can advance without 
a degree from MIT or some sort of superstar pedigree. And that's what I love about mm. this field. I, I don't look at people and say, oh, I went to you know this school or that school or they came from this. Are they doing good work? Do they know what they're doing? Are they talented individuals? And that's somewhat you know unique in, in some ways to cyber. And I love uh, I, I love that, right? It's you're rewarded based on what in your talent versus what school you went to or or where you came from in, in some ways. Uh, and it's a leveling effect. And as such, I think there's just great opportunity in our field. And I want to encourage everybody and anybody to take a look at those opportunities. If you're on the it. fence, come join us. A lot of work, a lot of opportunity in healthcare. Wow. Get in cyber. And with that, thank you, Carter. I appreciate your time today. This is Ed Gaudet from the Risk Never Sleeps podcast. And if you are on the front lines protecting patient safety and care delivery, remember to stay vigilant because risk never sleeps. Thanks for listening to Risk Never Sleeps. For the show notes, resources, and more information and how to transform the protection of patient safety, visit us at sensinet.com. That's C-E-N-S-I-N-E-T dot com. I'm your host, Ed Gaudet. And until next time, stay vigilant because risk never sleeps. Never sleeps.